Hello, welcome to Behind the Scenes with me, Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which people working in entertainment, behind the cameras, kindly share with us their never-before-heard anecdotes and stories. These are voices you don't often hear. I also chat with performers and actors to get a glimpse behind the glamour, the business behind the show. If you enjoy our podcast and like to consider becoming a Patreon member and support the podcast further, please check out the Patreon link below. Also, if you're interested in any of my steampunk murder mystery novels, then please go to steamsmokeandmirrors.com. And I really hope you enjoy this week's episode. Cue the music, Marky. This time, we're going behind the scenes with one of the most experienced comedy producers currently working in television. In a wide variety of programme making, over an award-winning 25-year career, he's headed up series starring Paul Whitehouse and Harry Enfield, David Mitchell and Robert Webb, Matthew Horn and James Corden, and Catherine Tate, alongside top-rating sitcoms My Family and Red Dwarf. He was also the entertainment executive at UKTV who established the company's many channels as significant light entertainment broadcasters. And in that capacity, he was the controller who commissioned the three-part documentary series, Bob Monkhouse, The Million Joke Man. Not forgetting, of course, that for any international television production concerning the rock band Queen, he is the go-to guy. So it's a joy to welcome Mr. Simon Lupton. Oh, what an introduction. Thank you very much. Can we stop there? <laughs> Can we it's, it's, downhill it's, from here on? <laughs> it's late, folks. Good night. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can we, can we begin by chatting about, I think, probably the first time we met, mm. which was at it's, it's a, a Patisserie Valerie in Old Compton yes. Street in London. Yeah, not And there the circumstances where we first talked about Bob Monkhouse, the million joke man. Hmm. So it was your first commission when you were given the top job at UKTV. So talk us through how that commission came about from your memory. Yes, it was an odd one because I'd actually joined UKTV with a very specific brief to um, try and take their scripted uh, sort of comedy to the next level. They'd they'd, they'd made a start and they were really pleased with the progress they'd made, but they wanted to grow it. So that was my brief. Um, so it was quite odd that the first thing, thing that I went back to them and said, well, actually, can we not do a three-part documentary series on Bob Monkhouse? Um, but it was just one of those things where an opportunity suddenly presented itself and the timing just felt right. And it felt so perfect for Gold, which is the channel that it went out on. Um, and it all came about from uh, a mutual friend of ours, um, brilliant writer Brian Levison, ah, God bless who him. I was uh, having lunch with, who I'd got to know working on my family um, in a previous life. Um, and we'd kept in touch. And obviously, when I was looking to grow UKTV's scripted content, he, he was one of the people that I was talking to. And he just happened to mention that I think he'd seen you and that you'd been given possession of these amazing joke books that Bob Monkhouse had created that weren't just full of jokes, but these amazing illustrations and doodles and drawings and so forth. And he'd got some photographs on his phone on a couple of pages that you'd you'd let him take. And it was just one of those things where I just thought I had no idea that someone as, as prolific as Bob would actually write them all down and have them in books and Brian was there going oh yeah he's got loads of them there are dozens of these books you know um and I just thought what an extraordinary thing how marvelous that would be to look at but also what a great way to look back at him mm. as a an individual and as a performer and he just summed up for me sort of everything that I'd loved growing up watching comedy as someone who was when I was watching him an entertainment host but a real personality and just able to deliver a joke at a moment's notice 
And the fact that that was all down in books just fascinated me. Mm. Um, so we started to explore it. And then that's when I met you. And of course, the more we spoke, the more I realised that Bob's life had been f- as fascinating as these books. So it, it's, I think it's yeah. one of those moments where the stars just aligned. It was. And I nearly put the mockers on it because I don't <laughs> think you know this because I, I came along to the aforementioned uh, uh, patisserie and mm. you... Brian and uh, Paul Manette sitting there and I showed you the books and you said to me do you know Colin I, there is a documentary in these and I distinctly remember saying to you well I'm not sure Simon you know because they're an inanimate <laughs> object and I promise you faithfully there was a voice in my head which was I'm not being fanciful this is Bob Monkhouse saying to me Cole you're a so-and-so <laughs> Listen to yourself. For the first time in your life, a commissioner is saying to you, can we make this program? You spent your lifetime pursuing commissioners saying, please, can we make this? The role was reversed. You're off your head. And I took a beat, uh, listened to his sage wisdom, and I said, but I think you've got a point, Simon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, flatter the commissioner always works. (laughs) It's it's always a good way of doing it. But, um, well, I'm I'm glad you listened to the voice in your head. And if it was Bob, then bless him for that. Yeah. it yeah, was an extraordinary sure. journey, but it was it was a lovely show to make from for, from my point of view. It was a personal kind of journey, a journey. Sure, I hate using that word, but it was a personal adventure, a retrospective adventure, and with your support. And then um, you said to me, "But we need. Are you a production company?" I said, "No." Well, we need a production company, and so you you approached Mark Wells's outfit, which is now hmm. Double Yellow, and they made the show. And here's where I'd like to just chat for 30 seconds after we'd made we'd we'd after i'd help them make the three-part series you came along to watch mm. the first episode you came mm. along to the edit and you sat down and you said okay let's have a look so we played you that first show that first hour and you sat there i remember it. you had your feet up you had your yeah yeah <laughs> hands behind your back and you watched it and you nodded and you chuckled and then at the end of it you said I like that. Three things. This, that, and that. And every one of your suggestions, and I'm not blowing smoke, we, Mark Wells looked at, our, looked at one another and we said, God, he's absolutely right. <laughs> and after you'd gone, Mark said to me, he said, in all my years of dealing with commissioners, I've not had one bring not a sheet of paper or a pen to the review to make notes. It was so impressive. And, I, and I'm, not, I'm telling you this, but I want my listener to hear this as well. You were so impressive in that edit and every one of the notes you gave was spot on. So uh, accept that praise. I will. will, And I'm blushing. And when I said earlier, could we stop? Could we stop now? (laughs) (laughs) It must have been a joy though, when the series got such terrific reviews and and an Mm. award nomination, but, and you had confidence in the project from the get go, your instinct told you, but it's interesting from a commissioner's point of view, Simon, because you can never really be 100% sure it's going to work, can you? No, no, absolutely not. And and anyone who tells you that they, they are 100% sure is, is either misguided or, or perhaps uh, lying. Um, <laughs> because there is so much, uh, I don't want to say luck, but it, everything has to align, doesn't it? for it to to work and there are some things that you can make align by making good decisions um and listening to the people around you and and taking the advice and there are some elements that just are in the hands of the gods um you know does it hit at the right moment is it scheduled in the right place is the audience looking for that sort of thing and i think there are lots of things not just in television but in art generally where they were perhaps ahead of their time and the audience wasn't ready for them. But if they happened later or now, could have been a very, very different story. So I think there is there is definitely... Uh, I don't quite know why that was the right moment to tell Bob's story. But mm. it, for some reason it was. Um, yeah. But other than that, where it isn't down to luck is the people that are actually making it and they get it and they... And there's that alignment between the the channel you know through the commissioner and the program makers that everybody's making the same thing 
and that that I think is the key thing if everyone feels that they're working on the same project it goes very smoothly it's when one person's making one thing and the other person's expecting something else mm. and that's I where trouble lies and I suppose sometimes you know with various commissioners they make suggestions for the sake of making suggestions and rather than make it better they just make it different that's exactly it I I'd learned very early on that you, you can give three kinds of notes. You can give a note that makes it worse. You can give a note that makes it better. And you can give a note that makes it different. Mm. And so the only note worth giving is the one that makes it better. Just giving a note to make it different is like, well, you know, there is no point to that, mm. you know. Because if we all sat down and made a documentary about Bob, they'd all be very, very different. You know, that, that's just the way it is. But that yes. was the documentary that, that you and Mark were making. And... Um, and I, I didn't want to interfere with that. Mm. Um, what I hoped I brought to the edit and what from what you're saying it sounded like it did was just that fresh perspective on someone who hadn't been on that journey, who hadn't made the decisions you've made because of everything that you've looked at and considered. So it's just looking at it completely fresh and just going, oh, what about this and what about that? And and hopefully then that makes you go, oh, actually, yes, that's that's a different mm. that's that's a nice way of doing it that's actually would make it better and that would make more sense or there's me going i i don't have the knowledge that you have so i don't understand what this means mm. um you need to make this clearer to someone who doesn't know what you know and again as a program maker as well i always find that kind of feedback incredibly helpful because it is very difficult when yeah. we, when we've been on that journey we know everything around it to assume that other people do as well. <laughs> yes, that's that's the truth. You, you, your first note was, uh, if Paul O'Grady is going to host this and he was friends with Bob, can we have a little bore of Bob Monkhouse with Paul O'Grady, please? And we think, oh, my goodness, you're absolutely yeah. right. Because it was an assumption that we'd made and known. And, uh, it was yeah, 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 yeah. Let me stick with UK TV, if I may, please. Mm. And you are a hero to science fiction <laughs> fans the world over. And I'll tell you for why. Well, you know why. You revived Red Dwarf with the original cast. I mean, that what a fantastic idea. Was that, are you a sci-fi fan? Was it your idea? I am a huge sci-fi fan. I can't claim that it was my idea. I have to say that the decision to bring Red Dwarf back had sort of been made and discussions had started before I arrived at UKTV. They'd made um, was it a one-off or a little three-part miniseries to sort of bring it back and that had done incredibly well so then it was a okay let's go for a, a new series mm. um and so when i had my interview at uktv and then was offered the job it was explained to me that one of my jobs roles would be you know steering red dwarf um, back to the screen as a full series and they'd commissioned two series back to back because it um it was an incredibly expensive show to make from a design point of view so you know, building that set and getting it ready, then pulling it down after six episodes and then putting it back would just have been ridiculous. So to try and do 12 episodes um, back to back was the, was the plan. Um, so it was a big undertaking, um, but really, really exciting and uh, not a little bit daunting, I have to admit, because it had been running for many, many years. Um, mm. And it's always difficult when you are the new guy walking into something that's already been going for I think it was about 12 series by that point or maybe maybe 10 series by that point so um they're a family you know they've got that shared history they've they've been through all of that and then suddenly you're the new guy that's supposed to be in charge I, I never saw it like that but you are the voice of the channel you know the mm. voice of the money people yes um, on, on the ground floor so yeah there was um yeah and I would contend more significantly than the cast the fans because yes. the fans are passionate about sci-fi and woe betide you if you get it wrong. Absolutely. And again, a very early decision that I made was not to try and change or force anything new onto it because the fans wanted Red Dwarf back. They want, you know, they wanted their Red Dwarf. And for suddenly me to sit there going, let's put a 21st century spin on it. Let's, uh -huh. You know, it's sort of... That would have been ridiculous, and 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 then you end up alienating the fans <laughs> that loved it, um, yeah. and you don't necessarily win over new ones because to them they're going, oh, I, I didn't see the rest of it, so I, I'm not part of the gang. So yes, um, yes, and it had the benefit of obviously Doug Naylor 
had been involved in every single show um so you know i couldn't possibly hope to know more about the show than than him so mm. i didn't even try mm. <laughs> it, was, it would have been a fool's errand in that respect yeah that's it's, it's that soft touch isn't it to know when to step back and let just let well as you mentioned with the, with the bob documentary let mm. them making it get on with it and don't interfere yeah and it, it's interesting because uh, i mean i think you've touched on this in in some of your earlier podcasts particularly when you're talking to you know writers or producers and directors is that the relationship with the commissioner can be a, a fractious one and having been on both sides of the fence i i totally get that because um it is a difficult relationship and i guess if i can stick stick up for commissioners a little bit um it's a very odd position because you are employed by a channel normally or broadcaster um they pay your wages that's who you work for that's who you that's the office you go into every day um so you work for them however your job is to fight for the production company that you have you know sort of basically hired to make a show so if ever there's a conflict between the channel and the production you know the channel wants one thing and the production want to do something else even though you're employed by the channel your job is to fight for what the production company you're, you're their voice because the production company can't meet with channel controllers all the time or you know sort of be walking around the corridors of the channel that's you yeah. so it can put you in a very difficult position yeah um because as well as fight for the production company you're also required to deliver what the channel needs and expects and they are paying for it so yes um you know at the end of the day yeah without their money it doesn't happen yeah I'm, I'm listening to your the way you explain these things and the, the timbre of your voice which i'm so used to <laughs> you strike me as being along with kevin bishop the great kevin bishop mm, mm, the calmest kevin. man in television and I, and I guess you need <laughs> that kind of I want to say easygoing, but it's going to sound wrong, but I can't think of another adjective at the moment. Easygoing approach as a, as a commissioner, because otherwise it's going to be all-consuming and crushing, I would have thought. Yes, absolutely. I think, yeah, there's no, you can't... There are enough egos in our industry, aren't there? The last thing you need is a commissioner with an ego. Um, <laughs> because <laughs> that, that really is, um, that really is problematic. Um, yeah, it, it's... I mean, the other thing is, is when you get the job, there is no training. There's no one telling you how to do it. You mm. kind of have to learn as you go. And I think you make a decision very early on what kind of commissioner you're going to be. Mm. And I think I wanted to be the kind of commissioner that as a producer I would have wanted, which was someone who was there as a resource, who was a support, who was championing what, I was doing as a producer um, and the advice and support I was getting was helping make the best program you could not by changing necessarily the creative or imposing anything on it but sort of saying look I'm party to all sorts of audience research I sit with the channel controllers on a regular basis you know this is the stuff I eat breathe and live on a daily basis let me share with you what i know about our audience so that you can make a program that will strike a chord with that audience because if you do it will be successful and then we'll want more of your show um but it was it staggered me the number of producers who i'm sure through prior experience wanted to keep commissioners at arm's length um mm. and didn't trust them mm. um and I worked with a variety of producers and some of them it was very difficult and took a while and others where they were brilliant at managing me, you know, and I know they were managing me, but they were brilliant at it and it mm. made me feel like I was part of it and it just made for a much happier ship all round. But mm. I totally get when producers and writers <laughs> just go, bloody commissioners, <laughs> it's sort of... I, I get it, and I'm sh there are there will be some out there. I know there are some out there who probably f who felt that about me because I certainly didn't get it right every time. Um, yeah. But it was uh, when it works, and yeah. I have to say, with Doug, I you know I, I work I worked hard, and I think 
he respected that and we got on really well and it was a really happy experience and i i just feel really proud and honored to be a very very small part of the history of that show a show i'd watched as a teenager and so to have my name on the end of it for a couple of series is something you know that's stuff dreams are made of isn't it it? don't get better does it It don't get better it really doesn't another show where i would contend you really got it right was when you work with my sitcom heroes dick clement and ian lafrenet Ah, yes. Like lads of it is a porridge fame. The show was called Henry the Ninth, Mm -hmm. a sitcom written by Dick and Ian, which you commissioned. Uh, How did and how did that come about? First of all, that came about because they'd made a show about porridge, uh, similar to how we'd done the the Bob Moncash show. There had been a retrospective on porridge um, that had been handled by a colleague of mine, Ian Coyle, who was the commissioning editor for that. and he very kindly introduced me to Dick because I went along to the screening of it and he introduced me to Dick and Ian and um, again, like you, huge heroes, icons, you know, wow, what a CV. Um, and so I got introduced to them and it was just that kind of chat afterwards that I said, look, if ever you guys want to dip your toe back into half hour sitcom, then of course we would love to hear about it you know please do let us know um and fortunately they kind of said yes that is something that they would like to do and they came back to me with this idea um if my memory serves which was henry nine um which was a lovely idea about uh a king who doesn't want to be king anymore um he just wants to step down and enjoy life and mm. um you know do all those things that he's never been allowed to do and is up against an institution that just will not let him do that and f- the immediate thing that struck me is that is a man trapped and there is no one better at writing man trapped than dick oh, and ian yes of course you know it's just and it was just <laughs> and i just thought yeah someone desperate to get away from everything that their life stands for and just do their own thing yeah the wife won't let him because she likes being queen his son doesn't want to be king and to a point the king is like going yeah i get that i get that you Mm. don't want to be king but i need you to be king because Mm. i don't want to be it either um and then of course constitutionally it never it never happened so it's like you know you don't just get to quit your job so Mm all of those people as well um and the public and everything and i just thought that's that's brilliant and um it was a it was a joyful thing and didn't it work so well because it won a a a rose door yeah it did and i'm so pleased for you but i'm pleased for them as well because i don't think they've written much of anything since no and i think it was one of those things it was just a story they really wanted to tell and it was a sort of a perfect little journey over three episodes. I mean, I think ideally it would have been great to do more, but at, it didn't work out. But as as it happens, I, I think it's great. It's a perfect little sort of journey. Um, mm. And I uh, asked them to team up with uh, a production company again, similarly, you know, how, how you and Mark got together to do Bob. Um, I put them together with a brilliant producer called John Rolfe, who'd been a commissioning editor at the BBC when I had. Um, and I absolutely trusted to know how to you know help them deliver something you know in Mm. in a modern in a modern era where you know the demands of a channel are very different to when they were in their heyday Mm. um but still enabling them to do what they do best and he he handled that brilliantly i think i couldn't have done it without him for sure yeah and of course we are we are talking about gentlemen who are in their 70s Uh, yeah and, and in a world really particularly in America, I suppose, Simon, whereby if you're older than 40 as a comedy writer, yes. you're you're past it, baby. You're burned out. Yeah, absolutely. And I just don't, I don't get that mm. mentality, but there is a real drive to sort of, oh no, you know, older people couldn't possibly write anything that would appeal to a broader audience. It's like, yeah, but have you seen what these guys have written? <laughs> it's sort of, yeah. and you know, their their ability to come up with a situation and and deliver dialogue and it mm. was absolutely fantastic and mm. I have to say my one of my proudest moments was I 
I don't quite know where the courage came from, but we'd done a read through and it had gone really well. And we were just talking about it afterwards. And a joke just occurred to me in the read through and I pitched it to them afterwards. <laughs> it's just as it came out, I thought, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> this isn't your job and you're pitching to two of the greatest comedy writers in history. But they liked it. And it went in, and um, I'm just like, thank you very much. I'll only do that once, because oh. <laughs> no one needs it. But yeah. just one of those moments where it was there, and I went, I can't believe they haven't done that. And um, it was, uh, it was Dick who just went, oh yes, that's ah. actually quite good. Oh, that's <laughs> thank you very wonderful. much. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. Um, here's the thing, sir. Porters, mm. another show called Porters. Yes. Um, starring Rutger Hauer. I mean, how did you get <laughs> Rutger Hauer? It was a very strange um, chain of events um, in that we, it was that combination of, we were conscious that the cast was very young because that's what Dave wanted. They wanted a show where there would be a younger cast to appeal to a younger audience. The trouble when you write something that's predominantly younger cast is it's very, very hard to cast people that have that kind of poster uh, appeal that box office appeal if you like because there aren't many of them that have been around long enough to build up that kind of following and we went after some of the usual suspects um, but it was sort of with a heavy heart because you think we're not casting because they're the right person for the role we're casting because they will they will look good on the poster and they'll get the press interested and to their great credit because by this point I'd left um, UK TV and was now actually producing the show and to their great credit UK TV said no you're right let's go with the people that we all think are going to be great for these parts um, but we do need someone somewhere in the mix that the press are going to get excited by and so we made one of the characters much older he became this kind of sage this sort of kind of grandfather to them all um, and we went looking for someone and the director was very good friends with the agent of Rutger Hauer and he just suggested him. Um, and we, it was one of those moments we always went, that's insane. Why would, why would Rutger Hauer do this? This is, it just doesn't make any sense. And he said, well, we could ask. So we did, we asked and we got the message back that, do you know what? Rutger's at a stage in his life where he just wants to do things that interest him we'll ask him he'll probably say no but we'll ask and we didn't think anything more about it we mentioned it to the uk tv and they were like well yeah okay let's cross that bridge <laughs> when it comes to it never and we were still sort of thinking about who else we might go to and then the call came back rutgers read the script he thinks it's hilarious he'd love to do it and we were like oh <laughs> and um it yeah. all sort of fell into place and he came and did it and there was a wonderful moment where there was this scene uh, where he's on a on the roof and there is a, a patient who keeps threatening to, to jump off the roof because he's attention-seeking. It's quite a dark story. And that was being played by the wonderful Matt Horn. Um, but Matt was in theatre at the time, so he had to leave about five o'clock on a shooting day to get to the theatre in time for his show. So we shot all of the angles we needed with Matt and then we let Matt go and then we then reversed the camera as you do, single camera, and we were then shooting Rutger's bits but someone had to stand in for Rutger, uh, for Matt so that Rutger had the eye line and I he delivered the line, so that was that's what I did, I just stood on this box on the edge of this roof on top of Ealing Hospital just feeding the lines and basically the, the joke was, was that Rutger Hauer's character tries to do reverse psychology by basically saying yeah you're worthless no one likes you jump go on no one will care just do it just jump in the hope that then you know Matt would wrestle and he would pull him free I think he said he'd seen it in Lethal Weapon <laughs> and the joke being that Matt then jumps <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he doesn't die I'm pleased to say and Rutger Howard's like he wasn't supposed to do that but I'm stood on this box delivering these lines and Basically, Roy Batty from Blade Runner, the most scariest man yes. in movies, yes. is saying to me, you're worthless. Go on, jump. See if I care. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful. And you managed to get Kelsey Grammer as well for a quick scene. 
Yes, again, the director, Vadim Jean, mm. uh, a man with a, a little black book to die for, um, New Kelsey, and he just happened to be in London and happened to have a day off and just said, I can give you two hours um, to play this one, this, this sort of cameo role. And that was the most amazing day. You could see everyone was on their best behaviour because yes. it was, this is comedy folklore walking mm. in here. Yeah. And... Um, yeah, we were all a little bit overwhelmed by that because I think Fraser is probably the closest to perfection you could get For in, sure. in the world of a sitcom. Absolutely. Um, and watching him at work, he'd, he'd do a take and then he'd just look over at Vadim and just sort of little shake of the head. No, no, that's not right. And so Vadim go, okay, we're just going to go again. And then he'd do it again, again, another just an imperceptible sort of no. Lovely. And then third time and then just the nod. You know, and, and it wasn't sort of saying we can move on. It's like, it was like, I'm happy now mm. as long as... And he was so generous and it was like, but if, if anyone else needs to go again, then let's do it again. It was never when I'm happy, but he just knew yes. when he'd got it. And he yeah. was right. Absolutely. <laughs> can we now spin right back to the beginning of your career? Not that long ago, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to tell my, my, my listener. <laughs> um, so when did you first take an interest in comedy in particular and entertainment in general? I think uh, it, well, I, I took an interest in television first. Um, many a running battle with my mum in particular, who wanted me to go outside and get some fresh air. <laughs> All I wanted to do was sit and watch, watch telly. I just loved, I just loved the television um, and would watch it as much as I could get away with, uh, to be honest. And I think, programs that I connected most with over anything else were entertainment and comedy, particular comedy. And I was a huge, huge fan of sitcoms in particular, um, studio sitcoms, I absolutely adored. Um, mm. And it was great because actually, to be fair, um, it was something we watched a lot as a family. Um, and uh, yeah, I have very fond memories of, of watching the ones that were, were on at the time, uh, such as Hello, Hello and Heidi High and classics like that but also enjoying the reruns of uh, of the ones that had gone before um, when I was much younger such as Porridge and, and so forth mm. um, so that's where the interest was um, just loved being made to laugh and I think what was great is I really got into it at a time when the alternative comedy scene came along as well but I never it never occurred to me that I'd have to choose <laughs> <laughs> never, I never thought you could, you would, you'd be in one camp or another. That if you were into alternative comedy, you just wouldn't be able to abide watching some of those old classics because they were old-fashioned and so forth. I just loved it all, and mm. so you know, the young ones just felt like a real guilty pleasure that I shouldn't be allowed to watch. Mm. Um, and I loved Blackadder as well, of course, but um, but it still didn't stop me watching Heidi High and <laughs> Hello Hello and 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 enjoying you know watching shows like blankety blank and uh and things like that which were hosted by you know when les dawson used to host it mm. as well you know it was, it was fantastic mm. so how then did you break into television per se what was the route you took well i I'd, uh, i was lucky enough to be sort of have the opportunity to go to university when i finished school um it was sort of something my parents were keen for me to do um and so i was trying to decide what to do I was looking at business studies courses because I thought that would be something that was worth doing, um, but just couldn't get motivated to do it. Just didn't mm. really appeal to me. Um, and eventually, again, it was my parents who said, "Well, what would you like to do?" And I said, "I would love to study television and, and, and media. That's what I would enjoy." Um, and so their attitude was, um, "Okay, well." why don't you go and do that? You know, you don't necessarily have to do it as a career, just go to university and study something. And, um, and so I did, I went and did media at Bournemouth university. It was the Dorset Institute of higher education. When I applied, it mm -hmm. became Bournemouth Polytechnic in my second year and Bournemouth university in my third year. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I, I did, I ended up getting a university degree, but media was very, very rare in those days. There weren't many places that offered it. Um, oh. but I managed to get a place on that course and I just absolutely loved it and I specialised in radio actually r rather than television um, mm. 
but uh again you know i'd I'd listened to so much comedy on radio as well so it, it all felt the same to me in terms of how it was and then when i came out of university i just thought give it a go see just see if you can get into the industry and i knew that despite having a degree um I'd still need to start at the very beginning, at the bottom, and work my way up. I was happy to do that, so I started applying for runners' jobs, mm. and uh, it took me six months. I think I sent over a hundred CVs out and applied to all sorts of jobs, and got lucky in that my CV landed on the desk of a production company on the day they decided that they needed an office runner. So it wasn't attached to a production, but actually to work in the office and look because they had a number of productions, um, and so I went for an interview and as well as the person who was interviewing me in the office was a beautiful um, American Spaniel, a lovely little dog who I just started absentmindedly stroking because she was sat right next to me and she was wagging her tail. So I'd started stroking and we were getting on as we were doing the interview. And I ended up being offered the job partly because one of my jobs would be to walk the dog. And the, the dog was deliberately in the interview as part of the, um, you know, if, if I ignored the dog or didn't get on with it, then I couldn't get the job um, because the, the the two people that ran the company were married and um, the dog used to come into the office with them and they, it would it needed walking. And um, so that would be my job. And that company was Hattrick Productions, who were the makers of... Have I Got News For You, Clive Anderson Talks Back, Drop The Dead Donkey, Father Ted, Whose Line Is It Anyway, shows, well, at the time Father Ted hadn't started, but all of the others were shows that I watched when I was at university and just thought were amazing. And so my wow. first job, proper job in telly was The Office Runner at Hattrick, surrounded by all of that amazing comedy talent both on both sides of the camera. Yeah. Oh, what a starting point. I know. Once again, the the, the god of comedy cut, bends down and kisses you on the forehead. Absolutely. Um, yes, you do get lucky. But also, I think the mark of a true skill and a talent is to recognise you've got that luck and grab it and run with it yes. and not squander it. No, absolutely. And I just, yeah, clung on to that job for mm. dear life because I, I knew I'd been handed a... A wonderful opportunity and I think what's great is that opportunities continue to come continue to come your way and you have to be open to them and responsive to them um part of the job was there was a receptionist that would start at nine and she would finish at six and I would start at ten and finish at seven and the part the reason for that was to have someone who would man reception and answer the phones between six and seven because you know people don't just suddenly stop calling at six so they wanted someone for that that hour so that was my job um among all the other things but six till seven i would cover reception and answer the phones and it was getting towards the end of my shift and i was packing up and a wonderful producer who i'm sure your listeners will know of called jeffrey perkins um, ah, who was yeah. a, a comedy legend was just walking past as i was packing up and he said um are you finished for the day and i said yes yes i am but if there's anything you need you know I, I, I can do it for you, whatever. He said, no, no. He said, I'm going to a budget meeting with a production manager for a new show. I just thought you might like to sit in so you can see what one of those is like. And that's what I mean. You get someone like that. Just, mm -hmm. And so, of course, I said yes. And he said, great. He said, here's the budget. Go and photocopy it and then come in and um, we'll, um, you know, you can sit and if you've got any questions, just ask them as you go along. And... Uh, yeah, so I, I did, and that was the budget meeting for the first series of Father Ted. Oh my um, goodness me! And I remember the the conversation about can we get a helicopter to do the opening title sequence? You know, because we want to fly over the sea and then over the island and mm. zoom in on. So all of those conversations, and I didn't know anything about the show. And um, Jeffrey gave me some scripts to read on the way home, um, so I did. And I, <laughs> I, in all honesty, I just went. It's good, but there's this one character. All she says is "go on, go on, go on, go on." That's just not funny. <laughs> it's just like, oh yes, it is, Lupton. You'll find out. You know, yes. in the right hands, that will be hysterical. Yes. Um, 
But yeah, and and yeah, it presented lots of opportunities. And then eventually, I did end up moving from being office runner to production runner. Have I got news for you? Now, series eight, I think it was that I did mm. um, back in about ninety oh, five. What an apprenticeship! Yeah. Oh yeah. Gee, yes, you were. I mean, sitting on the I floor. I made a cup of tea for Peter Cook. You know, <laughs> it's just like it doesn't get much better than that as a runner, does it? That's that'll do me for a career, actually, having made yeah, yeah, Peter exactly. Cook's tea. Thank you very much indeed. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess at some point you moved on from Hat Trick. That was that when you joined the BBC straight away. No, I didn't. I moved out to bizarrely. It, it got to the point where I was just. I knew I needed to move on from being a runner um, and there weren't opportunities to climb the ladder so much at Hattrick then. There are now. They're very, very good. Um, but in those days, it was much it was much harder. And once people had seen you doing one job, you know, it was very hard to sort of necessarily move up within a company. Um, so I ended up working for a small production company in Newbury, bizarrely. Um, and the the great thing about that was when it's a smaller company, you just have to roll your sleeves up and and do whatever needs doing so I got lots of opportunities to do research and and sort of almost not quite directing but certainly a little sort of associate producing and that kind of thing there Mm. um and then from there I moved to the what was then the Paramount Channel before it became um the uh the comedy before it became Comedy Central Mm. and again was there at the time that Matt Lucas and David Williams were starting out. Simon Pegg was starting out. Sasha Baron Cohen was doing his first stuff there. Um, Edgar Wright was directing, who went on to become a fantastic movie director. Um, You know, so again, surrounded by an extraordinary array of of talent from both sides of the screen. Um, But working for the BBC was always the dream. I just wanted to work at Television Centre. I ended up there in a kind of roundabout route. (laughs) I ended up first going up to BBC Birmingham and working at Pebble Mill on Telly Addicts um, oh, with Noel yes. Edmonds. Um, I did that for a year and then came back and, and landed. I remember distinctly remember when I got offered the job as a development producer for the BBC Entertainment, new comedy department within BBC Entertainment in-house. I remember as I got offered it, I, I said, I have just been offered the best job in television you know that's what it felt like yeah 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 and you were you were learning even if you pick up a little tickle from jeffrey or the oh. or the, the guys at hattrick and and also i guess was it were you working under the auspices of, of someone like paul jackson at the bbc when you were working in comedy yes there? paul jackson was my ultimate boss i worked for a lady called mifanry moore who mm. was the one that kind of brought Little Britain to, to television. Um, so she was great. She I'd worked for her at the Paramount Channel and she very kindly took me uh, with her when she um, to the BBC. Um, but Paul Jackson was her boss, so he was our overall boss. Mm. Um, and yeah, and by that point, Geoffrey had also moved to the BBC. So there was Paul as the head and then Geoffrey Perkins and John Plowman were the two sort of heads of, of their departments. Um, so yeah, Paul Jackson. I, I still occasionally speak to him. It's been a while. It was pre-pandemic the last time I spoke to him. But again, people like that—they always just stay somewhere in mm. in your career, and because they will give. If you if you if you look like you're willing to learn, and the people are incredibly generous with their time, and mm. Paul was uh, at the BBC despite running this huge department. Um, and Jeffrey was on a number of occasions, and it came full circle eventually, which we'll get to, I'm sure, when Jeffrey was producing Harry and Paul's show that I was the commissioning editor at. And, mm, yes, uh, exactly that. Um, so, what was it? About 2007, he became the BBC's comedy commissioner? Yes, so I'd left BBC in house again to sort of try and spread my wings. I felt I needed to work in the independent sector, so I'd gone on to work for. Um, ITV uh, well it was Granada when I joined uh, became ITV so that was um, in Andy Harris's department Andy Harris of course yeah Yeah, working with Saurabh Kakar Um, and uh, yes and I was making a show for the BBC and came to the attention of the commissioning editors through that and um, they gave me yeah offered me the job as a commissioning editor they were looking for someone they hadn't been able to find someone that they 
wanted and um my commissioning editor was Cheryl Taylor recommended me to Lucy Lumsden who was head of comedy commissioning at the time and I went mm-hmm. in for a, a chat you know just come for a chat <laughs> um and then was asked to go back for another chat to see if there's anything else I wanted to ask so I went back and wasn't expecting it but they offered me the job and I just thought again those opportunities don't come along very often mm. grab it and I wanted to do it to see if it would make me a better producer to be honest I wanted to know what went on on the other side yes I understand um, I, I do understand that totally but it's a with that that laundry list of comedy shows at the BBC that you've grown up with sitcoms and variety mm, mm. particularly sitcoms when you took on that role, it must have been kind of daunting because you knew the legacy of material that you were following in the footsteps of, he said rather inarticulately. No, no, you're absolutely right. And you're based at Television Centre, which is, well, was um, this amazing building, you know, that I'd grown up watching. You know, I'd watch Roy Castle tap dance around the, you know, the donuts. And, mm. and I just I just always thought that must be a magical place to to work and i honestly can't think of another set of doors that has seen more talented people from the world of comedy film sport politics you name it walk through those stage doors to go mm. into television center so there's this huge weight of of history you know more yeah. wise have worked here you know les dawson worked here, you know all these incredible people and mm. so yeah and the BBC is the biggest producer of of, of comedy in, in you know in this country, so yeah. it was great. But mm. it's full of very talented, very nice people yeah. <laughs> who, who yes. all share that responsibility. So it's it, it's never just you. Mm. Um, and if you have a good team around you, it's great. Yeah, and I was lucky I did. Well, yeah, but I think I just I thought the fact that you started at Bournemouth Uni in the radio comedy uh, mm. stream and your passion for radio. Do you think that informed your skill in understanding comedy on the page, by which I mean oh. all comedy on radio? There's nothing visual. Oh, yeah, sure, of course there's nothing visual. It's radio. Yeah. But you know what I'm getting at. It's, it's one of those things where you recognise the comedy on the page more than anything. I'd never thought about it like that, but you, you could well be right. I think it's it's a, definitely a combination of that, but also perhaps my love of studio sitcoms mm. where there's nowhere to hide, is there, when you write one of those? Uh, because yeah. if, you, if a joke isn't funny, there are 300 people sat watching <laughs> mm. who will let you know. Um, and it's... So I think it, it's... It's a it's a real discipline, isn't it, to sort mm. of make sure that jokes land when yes. you're, you're doing it live in front of an audience. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I want to continue the responsibility and taking on this this daunting task because when you find yourself producing Paul Whitehouse and Harry Enfield, mm. mm-hmm. you know, these guys are no slouches. Mm. These are two of the finest in the industry, and suddenly you're producing them. It, yeah, I'm going to use the word again: daunting. Oh, yeah, because everything that I had learned about comedy had been taught to me by people like them. Them, you know, yeah. they watching Harry Enfield and Chums um, was was it was you know, required viewing as as a teenager, mm. and um, yeah, so I, I'd I'd sort of learnt from them really. I think um, mm. growing up, so to then be in that position where you are the commissioning editor for their show was. I genuinely didn't quite know how to approach it. Um, and again, uh, Jeffrey Perkins came to my rescue because um, the process was was that um, they would do a read-through of the whole series. And you'd, as a commissioning editor, you'd be invited along and you'd sit and they'd, they'd read it out, literally read it out. Um, and you'd have to make your notes and then you'd have to give your notes at the end. And it was I was really worried about sitting there at this table with Paul, with Harry, with Jeffrey, with the people from Tiger Aspect who were making it, all the actors that had been there, and then looking at me going, so what did you think? What are your notes? And just thinking, what do you do? Mm. And um, the read-through came to an end, and 
everyone was sort of like, oh yeah, that, that was good, lovely, lovely. And then Jeffrey just turned to me and went, should we go to the pub? And he took me out of that situation, took me to the pub, just me and him, and he just sat down and goes, right, what do you think? Any thoughts, any notes? And it was just perfect because I'd been taken out of that high pressure situation and it was just him going, I want to know what you thought. And I would give my notes and he was very good in, he would either say, okay, yeah, no, I see where you're coming from. Yeah, we'll have a look at that. I think, yeah, I think we can do something with that. Or you might go, yeah, but I think Harry and Paul are probably right. You know, I think it's probably best. And he just explained why. Mm. And again, as long as it wasn't anything where I was going, you can't say that or we'll be in trouble if we do that mm. where is there's an editorial policy thing if it was something about is there a way that could be funny or is that a way that we could work on that yeah or that didn't feel as good as i was hoping it would be it was it was fine and yeah he, he yeah he listened and he took some notes and he did the ones he thought he could do and didn't do the ones he couldn't. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or didn't want to. Yeah. Uh, your great strength amongst your many great strengths is that it, it is your relationship with writers. I think you understand writers a, a lot with, with much, much greater clarity than a lot of producers or commissioners. I really believe that. Uh, so many writers, well, Paul and Brian, the aforementioned, and other writers have told me that, that you are the guy that just gets it. And I think maybe oh, it's because, but you totally understand the, the amount of time, effort and investment that's gone into to a 70-page sitcom script. Mm. And I think you also appreciate how distressing it is when you're in a position to have to say, actually, it doesn't work, guys. But you have some empathy to their feeling, I think. I, well, that's lovely to hear, that, and particularly if you've heard that from other people as well. I appreciate it because I, I love writers. I, you know, it's I'm a firm believer that you know a good script will fly wherever it is. Mm. A bad script, there's nothing you can you can do. You can have the best comedy actors in the world if the script's not good enough, mm. it it just won't work. Yeah. Um, so the script is unbelievably important to the success of anything and mm. when we talk about our favorite sitcoms invariably we're going it's so beautifully written so beautifully structured uh, you know or the characters have been created you know we, we touched on Frasier mm. earlier on is you could put Frasier and Niles anywhere and they will be funny mm. and in fact you could, I mean I remember there was one episode where uh, Marty, the dad, it was his birthday and he wanted to go to one of these god-awful themed chain restaurants for his birthday dinner. And that's all you have to say. And I know how Niles and Fraser are going to absolutely hate that, but they'll do it for their dad and the, and comedy will ensue. But that's mm. the brilliance of those characters, isn't it? You just get it. And it's... Yes. And I, but, So I, I always felt like I hoped... Again, I probably didn't get it right every time, but I hoped I always treated the writers with the respect that they mm. deserve. Yeah. And, and my favourite bit of the job is sitting with writers, talking about their script and trying to understand what they're trying to do and then maybe yeah. saying, I'm not, I'm not getting that, you know. Yes. Yeah. Go away. But never telling them how to do it because yeah. I, don't, I, I don't write. I don't know how to do that. Well, that's interesting. Since you say that, because it struck me that maybe you are a writer at heart. But okay. But, but speaking of writers, let me move back to my family, and I'd like mm. your opinion on this, please. Mm -hmm. um, the script writing process for my family was the American method, whereby mm. you got nine, possibly ten writers sitting around a table, putting together ideas and jokes for the script itself. Yeah. In your experience. Does that is that a better uh, method of creating comedy than maybe just Dick and Ian sitting by themselves or David Renwick sitting by himself to create a comedy script? Is it is it uh, is it ten writers better when you when you get writers working in Soviet? That's a really good question. I think it ties into a, a bigger point, which I'll just briefly say, and then I will answer your question. <laughs> I promise. Um, but I think that studio sitcom 
I think the comedy world has massively dropped the ball on studio sitcoms. Um, we've let them stagnate and we've not moved with the times, which is why there aren't many of them anymore. Um, and they're very difficult to, to get commissioned now because they're expensive um, and they feel old fashioned because they are still made the same way that they were back in the 60s and 70s. It's ridiculous. We've just not moved with the times. Um, and I think as as collective industry we all share the blame for that it's not nest it's not channels it's not writers it's not it's just everybody um i th i don't think i could say a team written show is much better than one that's written by an individual because there are so many i mean you know would i say that john sullivan <laughs> you know isn't as good as my family or of course he is he's you know he's every he wrote amazing shows but i did see uh on my family, a, a method of, of writing sitcoms that feels much more attuned now to what people expect from their comedy because of Friends, because of Frasier, because of Cheers, all mm. of those shows um, where you just rewrite and you rewrite and you pitch and you gag until it's got you the laugh that it, it, it needs. And, mm. You know, we know with, with Friends, for example, they record one episode over, I think it's about four sittings, you know, with different audiences. They, and if something doesn't work, they right, we need a new line here. We need a new, this isn't working. And they'll do, redo it. Whereas we would get to a point here where you lock the script. Mm -hmm. and that's what got made. And it used to be at the beginning of the week, at least with my family, it was right up until recording day that there were opportunities to change it. But even mm -hmm. then, that was quite a struggle because... We didn't have the infrastructure or the, the crews or the, the actors, dare I say it, who were used to where that way of working. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it's a much, it's a, it's a really interesting way of working and I, it worked on my family and I'm hugely surprised that not more shows have been done that way since. Mm. I don't get that. And it's a great way of breeding comedy writers of the future but it requires someone who knows what they're doing running their room. And I know when Brian Leveson came on your podcast, he talked about how one showrunner just didn't get it and it didn't work. And then Tom Anderson came in, who was, who was showrunning it when I worked on it. Mm. And he absolutely knew how to make it work. And yeah. um, the show sort of had a new lease of life as a result. For sure. Okay. You mentioned actors. Mm -hmm. So your preferred performer would it be an actor in a sitcom or would it be a comedy performer in a sitcom i am drawn i have to say to actors who have funny bones ah definitely and not all of them do mm -hmm. um, and a lot of them will be the first to admit that yeah but having sat in a lot of castings when someone comes in to do a reading and they know where the joke is. They know. They don't know where the joke. They know where the words that they have to hit to make the joke land. Mm. That is that is what you, I I love because I've seen writers sort of die inside when an actor butchers their joke because they hit the wrong word or or God forbid they they busk around the lines. Mm. Yes. <laughs> and you've got writers going, no, no, that sentence is constructed that way yes. <laughs> because that's, it doesn't work if you don't do it like that. And, yeah. you know, an actor goes, no, 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 it's fine. I'll make it funny like that. And no, no, Durr. no, just, uh, and, the, but a, a good actor with comedy bones knows that and will not only hit, get the words right in the right order, mm. but will hit them at the right moment. And yeah, I've uh, had the pleasure of seeing some amazing actors. Yeah. Um, be... I'm mindful of Simon Callow in, in The Rebel, a show that you did. Mm, mm. As, as, as a great actor. I mean, but, but nevertheless, he just kind of gets it, yeah. doesn't he? He just kind of gets it. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I love the fact that they bring all of that discipline that they've had of doing theatre. Yeah. Where they turn up every day to every shoot, word perfect. Yeah. You, you cannot, you cannot underestimate just how important that kind of side of the industry is, that professionalism. Yes. You know, yes. 
you know, you're never going again because they can't remember their lines. Yeah. I'm going to take you out of the environment now. Yes. And take you to the the the, the other terrific strand, string to your bow, which is the fact that you are the go-to guy. You are the first <laughs> point of trusted television contact when it comes to putting together documentaries for for Queen. Yeah. Rock group Queen. So. I remember you you written a book about Queen, or I'm not, Freddie particular Freddie Mercury particular. Yeah. So how did you get the job with Queen, or did you become their their tr- their, their trusted consultant? Again, I I have to say, in being in the right place at the right time um, and seizing an opportunity, um, I was it was when I was in house at the BBC and I was producing a sitcom uh, called Fun at the Funeral Parlour for mm. what was then BBC Three in its very fledgling days. So not a lot of people would have seen the show. Um, we had a very tiny budget, but it was written by a guy called Reese Thomas, um, who uh, is a very talented uh, comedy writer. And um, we bonded over that show because he was a huge fan of Queen, as was I. Um, and he'd written some oblique Queen references in his script just for his own amusement which i'd picked up on being a queen fan Mm. and so we got on like a house on fire so we did the first series and when we came to do the second series uh anita dobson came as a guest actress for one episode and she let slip or not let slip she just happened to mention that the reason she was doing the show is because brian may had watched the first series and thought it was really funny Mm. um and uh had helped her learn her lines. So we thought we should ask Brian to record the theme tune. <laughs> um, oh, yes. And so we did. We uh, we wrote to the PR company um, that looked after Queen and just said, can we ask? And the guy, Phil Symes, who looks after Queen's PR, said, well, look, Brian's incredibly busy. I think the answer is almost certainly going to be no, but he likes to know what he's been asked, so I will forward your request. And um, a few weeks later, we got this email from Brian's assistant going, Brian thinks this might be a fun thing to do. Ah. And so we met him, and he did. He recorded it. But the day that we met him, they had just signed a deal with EMI to start releasing DVDs. And so Reese and I bombarded him with ideas of what we would like to see on DVD um, when they came out. And uh, the next day I went into the office and there was a note from Brian going, really lovely to meet you guys. Loved all your ideas. I think you should make the DVDs for us. <laughs> and I went, is that wow. a job offer? And it sort of grew from there. So we yeah. started off just working on some DVDs and then and that was 20 years ago now. And they're a kind of organization that if they like you and you do good work for them, they just keep asking you back, which I'm pathetically grateful. Yeah. Wonderful. I think it's wonderful. Um, you've been running your own production company for a little yeah. while. Seven Seas Films. Yes. Which you set up with, of course, you set it up with a writer. Of course. Uh, Dan, <laughs> Dan, Dan Sefton, who's created some terrific dramas on, on, uh, Mm-hmm. on television uh, 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 the most lately I guess and then yes, good yeah. good good karma hospital um yeah. Uh, and did, yeah yeah of course of course yeah, yeah. so how did you meet Dan how did that come about um Dan and I went to school together ah I love it already. Uh, yeah and um we yeah we sat next to each other uh, at school and got on really well um but when we both left school and went to university I to Bournemouth and he went to study to be a doctor we lost touch because his parents moved away from where we lived so he wasn't coming back uh, in the holidays so and this was before you know Facebook or any way of connecting if someone moved away you just lost touch Mm. um so I didn't see him for years and years and then when I was at the BBC in commissioning there was the Porter's script was was under consideration at the BBC and I just saw his name on it and I went I wonder if that's the same yeah Dan and he had he'd gone off he'd qualified as a doctor he was an A&E doctor but he'd started writing in his spare time come up through casualty in Holby City um and now was doing his own things and so we met up uh and 
we just thought, well, let's try working together. And we developed some shows together, tried to pitch them around. Um, didn't get anywhere, but we got on really well. And then when I wanted to take the plunge and set up a company, I thought I'd love to do it with someone else. I'd love to do it with a writer. I just went to him and said, I'm thinking of setting a company up. And he went, I am too. Um, <laughs> it was just like, beautiful. well, there we go. And he's a Queen fan as well. So, of course, we were going to get on. It's <laughs> marriage made in heaven. What's it next was. in the diary for Simon Lupton? Well, um, we've spent the last few years beavering away, um, developing stuff, both in the drama and comedy space um, for Seven Seas Films. And slightly hampered by the pandemic, as uh, everyone yeah. in the industry has been, slowed things down. But... We feel now that we're very, very close and we've got a few projects that are under consideration. Um, so hopefully one of those will take off and I think then it will change gear for us. You know, once you get right. one going, hopefully more will follow. But it's tough and um, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people trying to do it who've got greater track records than I have in making stuff. So we'll keep but plugging away. We will watch, keep a weather eye out for, for Seven Seas Films. Oh, please do. Please do. <laughs> And if Thank you've got anything, Colin, let us know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, my always. God. It's almost Bob Monkhouse documentary all over again. We've got yes, someone in a position not? saying, would you like to? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Come full circle. Simon, thank you so much for your time. I really do appreciate it. Uh, and also, thank you. thank you. Thank you for all the hours of entertainment you've, you've brought for us. Thank you. Colin. To us all. It, it, it's you. been a joy. Um, we have been listening to the magnificent Mr. Simon Lupton, folks. Simon Lupton. Thank you, sir. Thank you.